Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today we're going to cover the book Heraclitian Fire by Irvin Chargoff, a book focused on the life and times and science and views of science of Irvin Chargoff. As for who recommended the book, it was Eric Weinstein, the managing director of Teal Capital, PhD in mathematical physics from Harvard, research fellow at the Mathematical Institute of Oxford University, and uh, he gave some interesting reasons for recommending this book. I'm going to read this from page 526 of Tools to Titans. I have another weird recommendation, which is the book Heraclitian Fire by Erwin Chargoff, who effectively shorted Watson and Crick. He told Watson and Crick that he didn't think that they were very good or very smart and that they didn't know their chemistry. They weren't qualified to work on DNA, etc. It turned out that they got it right and he got it wrong. When I heard that there was somebody out there who bet against Watson and Crick, I thought, well, this just is going to be the laugh of the century. But it turned out that it was just to short these guys required another genius. He writes about trying to suppress these guys and failing because they were right and he was wrong. He has enough presence of mind to struggle with that. So I thought that was a cool uh, reason why why he liked the book. And um, I, I thought there was a lot to like about the book. So uh, should we head into the our overview? Yeah, let's go ahead and do the overview. Okay. Yeah, I had never heard of this book and had never heard of Erwin Chargoff, but uh, I, I loved it. And the book has a, a pretty uh, sour look on the future, but to me, it was just an absolutely delightful book to read. It was one of those where I didn't want it to end, and I was just overall pleasantly surprised for not ever having heard of the book or anything like that. So um, had, had you heard of this one? I had not. And had you heard of, uh, of Chargoff? No, I, I, you know, everybody knows Watson and Crick, but, uh, nobody, uh, nobody really pays a whole lot of attention to Chargoff's name outside of, uh, you know, those who really work in this area. So, so yeah, I was not as, I was not as familiar with him, but, uh, did a little bit, done a little bit of, uh, looking around since then. Very interesting dude. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it, it's, it kind of follows, uh, a similar feel of the surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman in, in the sense that, that we hear from a couple different, um, scientists. And, and so this book is kind of a half autobiography and then half commentary on the way that science is going, especially in the, in the university system. Uh, so it, it was neat in, in a lot of different aspects just of, uh, him growing up and we'll get into to that a little, a little later, but, uh, that part of it. And then, uh, growing up overseas and coming to the U S uh, teaching at, at Columbia university and just a lot of, uh, uh, neat stories, not, not, not the, uh, the craziness, I guess, of, of, uh, Mr. Feynman, but, um, certainly some, some entertaining stories nonetheless. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, this book, uh, it, it has, it, it, it's similar to, to Feynman, it, Feynman's work in that he's similarly independently minded and sort of iconoclastic and different things like that. Uh, but th- there's a real difference in tone in this one. This, this book is a lot more, um, it's it, it, there, there's a tinge of, of sadness and loss that runs through this whole book. He's much more pessimistic probably than anybody else we've read so far this semester. And it's really interesting to see the difference there of such an independent thinker who is, you know, he's, he's quasi mystical and at the same, at the same point, really pessimistic and, and sort of jaded about everything, but without, without coming across as, overly bitter so that, that's a tough balance to to strike and 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 again really interesting uh interesting perspective on a lot of different things uh, particularly as, as pertains to uh to science uh throughout this book 
into to U.S. culture and U.S. university culture, uh, having having come from the outside, it, he has some pretty funny insights and and uh, commentary on, on that as well. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll get into our favorite quotes. My first one is uh, the conviction that I shall not die, known omnis moriar, so often repeated to me in the stillness of the night, had less to do with the cry of glory drunk Horus and his stainless steel monument than the incandescent loveliness of Mozart, Mozart's music. So this conviction that, uh, that it doesn't end here, that there, there's got to be something, there's got to be something more. He felt that the most in listening to Mozart. And I, I, I thought that was awesome and definitely, definitely can relate. Uh, I love, love Mozart's music love his operas. I love, uh, listening to his whole opera, whole operas when I'm working and, um, just think there's something just unbelievable about the, uh, his, his music. And, and so really related to that, uh, to that quote. All right. I'm going to go ahead and start with the contemporary world always rejects the best and the worst and takes to mediocrity as to a mother's breast. Yeah. So he 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 has a lot to say in this. And actually there's a lot of of tonal and also subject similarities here to uh uh Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh observations particularly of the West, but uh in terms of his sort of outlook on the world, he's similar to Solzhenitsyn in many respects and and uh this reminds me of Solzhenitsyn's uh, in, in a number of places in the book reminded me of Solzhenitsyn's discussions of fashion and uh uh his and 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 how uh how how the crowd the, you know the, the crowd dynamics and basically uh the herd mentality in in, in scholarship and in media and, and and elsewhere and how basically everybody just takes to whatever whatever the rest of the herd is doing and basically uh, Chargoff throughout is is saying, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody loves the mediocre stuff, and lots of it gets put out there, and that's what ends up getting consumed. But the great stuff, ultimately, you know, so often gets rejected until far too late, or uh, doesn't get recognized at all. Uh, so he's he's pretty pessimistic about that. But uh, I've found this to be the case in. You know, I, I work in a different area of academia and, and, and do research in, in another area, uh, in other areas. But I find that a lot of his complaints about uh, university life, academia, research, uh, and the incentives thereof are really, really, they ring true probably more now than they did in 1978 when this was published. And uh, I've found more often than not that yeah oh man the people who can produ produce lots of mediocre work those people get jobs and those people uh do you know really well they especially if they're capable of networking and and convincing people to uh uh that that you know they're decent you know decent at what they do the mediocre have no problems it's the 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 people who really are on bleeding edge some of those people uh, are the ones who have the hardest times getting jobs because they're not part of that larger crowd. They're pushing forward, and so job, job committees and such will look at them and go, eh, you know, well, this isn't, this doesn't sound like you know the other stuff that's going out, going on out there. That's no, that's because this person's brilliant, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that that's uh, instead. Let's go to safe old mediocrity where you know nobody nobody stands out and nobody's in danger of. Uh, uh, of any, you know, of it being too bad or too good. And and that's partly because people have a hard time judging between, you know, something that doesn't look like everything else could be either really bad, you know, it could be the worst or it could be the best, but you've got to have great judgment to be able to discern the two. And, and that's harder to do. So it's a lot easier to just stick with the crowd and go with mediocrity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was looking forward to your commentary on the, on the book, just with the, <laughs> the insight into university life, uh, that, that the author has, and then that, that you're, you're deep in that world. And so I thought you would enjoy those parts of the, the book. So my next quote is, uh, 
I, I was referring earlier to his uh, his commentary on on the United States. This was one of those uh, those quotes. I was afraid to go to a country that was younger than most of Vienna's toilets. Speaking of the United <laughs> States, of course. Yeah, well, we still are, and some at least in some areas. Um, okay, uh, another one, and this one's one that uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, Kevin Kelly when I uh, read this one. He said, uh, "What I did conclude after he, you know, sort of had this idea that things were going up to to really negative ends, and the end did not the apocalyptic expectations that he had uh, didn't necessarily uh, come to pass when he thought." But he said, what I did conclude is that the future always is a little farther away than it appears to the prophetic eye. On the whole, professional pessimists prove right at the end if one does not hold them too tightly to a timescale. So Kelly, of course, says, you know, uh, the optimists are the ones who who uh, shape the world. And uh, Targoff basically comes back and says, yeah, well, that may be true in the short run, but the pessimists are right in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, following that uh, that line of the future kind of permeates through this throughout this book. Yeah, I'll go with one other one that builds on that too, because he 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 is constantly critiquing uh, what he sees as uh, overweening uh, pride in 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 the way that in the direction of the modern of uh, of the natural sciences in his day and and how that's progressing and it has progressed uh, since since then. He says, man is only strong when he is conscious of his own weakness. Otherwise, the eagles of heaven will eat his liver as Prometheus found out. No eagles of heaven anymore, no Prometheus. Now we get cancer instead, the prime disease of advanced civilizations. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> yeah. Um... My next one, in the Sistine Chapel, where Michelangelo depicts the creation of man, God's finger and that of Adam are separated by a short space. That distance I called eternity, and there I felt I was sent to travel. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, a good sentiment. And again, he, he really likes to, to uh, remind his reader that as many explanations as we have of, of natural phenomena and all this— uh, one of the one of the other quotes that he has is even the most exact of our exact sciences float above axiomatic abysses that cannot be explored. And he wants to constantly remind the reader that, yeah, we may feel like we're really discovering the essence of things, but the reality is we don't understand. We don't really get it. We can predict certain stuff and we, we can model different things, but we don't really understand this stuff. There's an eternal gap between what we can know and what's what and, and the fullness of the truth and, and really understanding nature, which gets to the title of the book, too. So, yeah, it's yeah, interesting I, stuff. It, yeah. And he uh, kind of throughout uh, uh, wanting there to be uh, a humility in approaching the sciences and then and then, yeah, not not delving too far than uh, beyond what what we where we should go. And, um, you know, there's some interesting things on that. And then also, uh, he, he really did not like how things were getting so segmented. He, he thought that people should have more of a broad view of, of science, but, um, but the way he saw it going forward in his lifetime was that people were getting so, uh, focused on one specific area that, that it, it wasn't going in a good direction. Yeah, and it, it has gotten only more tightly specialized now than it was mm -hmm. then, which he predicts. I mean, he says it's going to continue to fragment and segment to the place where it's not science anymore. It's just you're looking at such a narrow sliver of things that can't really integrate with anything else. And you may not know the, the basics of all these various other aspects of what should be one unified discipline. You're just working so narrowly on your thing that really nobody cares about. And doesn't have then, any real impact, but you're finding a way to get paid for it. Yeah, and then those people become famous because of that uh, that focus, and then, and then he he hates seeing those same people then talk <laughs> about like popular topics, and and because they're an expert in this very defined field, all of Richard a sudden they Dawkins. can talk about all these other things, and he's like, they have no clue what they're talking about. But Richard Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he's. Yeah, I I won't I won't question his. Uh, 
capacity as a biologist, but when he ventures out to talk about lots of other things, he's uh, an untrained uh, amateur and in many cases, uh, you know, spits out what uh, Chargaff likes to call twaddle. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, that should be your book, uh, word of the book. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I like that that word there. But um, but yeah. So I'm and a couple other uh, actually uh, quotes that get to that uh, taking to mediocrity, and these are these are Solzhenitsyan type quotes, uh, where he says, "A society that consists only of slaves must invent a master. This master might be called will of the people, public opinion, or something like it, but he does not, of course, exist." And you know, he he's really. in numerous places just sort of distraught about how free people are finding ways to bind themselves up in little prisons of their own design and particularly with fashions and and these sorts of things and and he he goes on to say and all this without a formal ministry of propaganda no Goebbels is needed the system functions almost automatically, so Beelzebub may actually may have had a hand in, af- in it after all, as in all automats. The ways of the devil are so obvious that we do not see them. And, and he's talking here about the way that, that, that media shapes fashions and shapes opinions and so on, su- such that people come to, come to like and come to, to, uh, to believe in various things that really aren't it's not, it has nothing to do with the quality of things. They're just, they're just doing what they're told. And the media cycle continues to foster outrage and scorn and all sorts of other things to basically steer a populace that is, is in service of really no one. They've just invented a master called public opinion that, you know, by taking regular polling and these sorts of things, you, you shape where things go and no one's actually governing it. It just actually, it, it, it just continues to degrade, as he puts it, and, and it happens, you know, and, and, and he, he finds this to be an incredible phenomenon. Well, and speaking of, of Goebbels, um, Imagine I just what realized thought I'm, of the Internet, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> well, I just realized we we uh, we skipped over about the author. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. So his uh, he was Austrian born and um, his mother was killed. And he has a, a quote saying, having been deported into nothingness. So she was deported and then. I don't think he ever really heard uh, what exactly happened after well, that. The, just... the presumption is that she she died either on the trip or in a concentration camp. That she was deported mm-hmm. by the Nazis and and died at their hands for for sure. Yeah, and then uh, Chargoff himself he was he was of the age where he was not of fighting age for either of the two world wars. So he was. He was in between where where he was too young for the first one and then too old for the for the second one. So he didn't he didn't fight. Um, But uh, he's he's best known for being professor and chairman of biochemistry department at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. Uh, So that's that's a little bit about about the author. Uh, We we missed that part of the beginning there, but uh, (laughs) kind of falls in with. Yeah, and, and 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 actually, it's fascinating to hear his reflections on 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 pre-war Austria, and uh, particularly pre-World War One Austria, and how things how there were vestiges of what he regards as a more civilized world that yeah. were still there, but they were rotting to the core, and then eventually they they were cast off. And for him, the progression into modernity that you see in 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 the in the twentieth century, that progression that starts with World War One, really, where the old nobility gets overthrown. Uh, I mean, World War One, I, I guess, is another step in it, but it's the the, the thing that really shatters the world and and, and brings it into a, a, a totally different era. Uh, you know, you have the the communist revolution that fo- that that comes along with it. You have you know in Russia all these other things that that uh, that that quickly follow on the heels of what what happens with this but in world war one to where the old nobilities that had governed the world for centuries millennia really uh in in various ways i mean nobilities traded in some places and one would conquer another but you had sort of noble classes ruling that changes in the in in the 20th century and he doesn't have all that positive things to say necessarily about all those nobilities and all that, but he does seem to regard the 
the the prior order as superior to the what he sees as more or less disorder that follows upon that and all of the uh, you know culminating for him in the atrocities of World War II and Vietnam and all these other things where he's saying you know this is the bloodiest century in human history and we think we've suddenly become more civilized but in fact it's worse than it ever has been and and so he 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 he's lamenting this throughout and it's interesting to hear his perspective on this cuz it's very much contrarian but he got some point he's got some really good points to make there yeah and and he was he was also in germany between the the world war so he he almost was firsthand view there he was in berlin uh in the in the early 30s so firsthand view of of um what was leading up to to World War Two? Yeah, he he got to see what led up right up to World War One in Austria, and then what yep. led right up to World War Two in Germany. And then he recognized when he was in Germany, like I probably better leave. It's time to go. Yeah, yep. it's time to go. And then he tried to get his mother out, and sadly, you know, he 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 expresses uh, grief and frustration and 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 anger and a little bit of bitterness, and rightly so, that uh, his efforts to get his mother out were resisted, and ultimately. Uh, it cost her her life. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, uh, he, he got to see all this uh, firsthand. Okay. Which and, may explain some of the, uh, the negative outlook. Yeah. On... Some of his pessimism. Yeah. Just a little bit. Um, so I'm going to go with another couple quotes here before we get into, uh, your favorite words. Uh, this one seems relevant to what we were just talking about. Science has taught us that man is an animal a view often expressed by people wishing to excuse the bestialities they perpetrate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that actually is in, in line with something else that he says where, you know, he's a scientist, but he does, he has problems with, as we, with, with, with using science as the foundation, as a foundation for as sort of mythological foundation for how people live and so on. And he, he says elsewhere, he says, um, the terror this is of, uh, of where science is headed has not been removed. It has increased, for we have begun to define life by its very automatism. He, he repeatedly makes this point that we don't really understand what life even is. We're studying something that we don't know what it is. We can't really define it. It's beyond our comprehension of even how it, of what the thing is. And in order to study it, he makes the point that C.S. Lewis often makes that to really study things in, in the way that you do in science, you have to kill them. <laughs> and no. he's like, we can't study lie, live things in the way, you know, in, in, in a way that really gives us any sort of hard evidence about anything. In order to get that, we have to kill it, which means we're not actually studying the live thing itself at all. We're just studying something related to it, but it's not the living thing. But he says, the majesty of the book Genesis has been replaced by a technology of biopoiesis which may well make the centuries to come into an undreamed of nightmare which is fascinating to hear someone say this i mean this is a guy who whose discovery of base complementarity or what we now call base pairing paved the way for watson and crick's model a double helical model one of the you know one of the pioneering biochemists uh, of of the 20th century who's saying, you know, as we move into this uh, substitution of scientific ways of thinking about origins and human origins and what life is, and naturalist, he doesn't use this word, but naturalism, as naturalism substitutes for the old myths, like Genesis, we may find that instead of getting the... uh, optimistic, look, we can finally, you know, edit our genes and, and, and cure things like cancer. He says, no, actually, it's a lot more likely that we just make room for ourselves to become horrible, nightmarish monsters that, uh, that do the sorts of things that the Nazis did and far worse because we'll have better technology to do them and we'll have less mooring to the old myths that kept us human. So that's one of the interesting critiques that he makes throughout this. And I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. I just have one quote left and uh, it's a short one. I've always tried to maintain my amateur status. And that, <laughs> that made was one me, of mine. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and not, not give that one then. Cause that was definitely one. Oh, okay. Thinking. Well, you've got the full quote there. Yeah. So if, if you want to well, no, go, more, go for but it. it, it made me think of uh, a little Steve Martin 
in, in his book and then also Feynman. I, I think they both had a, a sense of, of maintaining that amateur status uh, in, in how they approached uh, what they what they did. But, yeah, I, I, it, the quote has a little more context with with uh, with what you had after that. Yeah, yeah. He elsewhere says, uh, or he goes on to say, I'm not even sure that I comply with my own definition of a good teacher. He learned much, he taught more. Of one thing I'm certain, a good teacher can only have dissident pupils. And in this regard, respect, I may have done some good. Okay. Yeah, I actually kind of agree with that too, because someone who's, who, who teaches well gets people to think on their own, which means he's training a bunch of dissidents. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I can go with that. Uh, a few others uh, from me, and these are mostly uh, complaints about uh, uh, higher ed and 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 the the, the process there. Uh, some of these were less applicable to the world of higher ed that he was in at that time. Uh, although he says this is how it was when I was in uh, when I was in um, in Austria, he says. There was an old, an old student's saying back in Austria, because of the glut of, um, uh, because of the gluts, the glut of, of, of the overproduction of scientific personnel for too few jobs. Uh, he says, um, there, uh, there, there was an old student saying, so let's put it this way. He says, uh, one, there were very few jobs uh, or I'll, I'll start earlier. Otherwise, one entered a career in science. This is someone who uh, studied science in, back in Austria, just as in history or philosophy, by, becoming to become, by, by trying to become a teacher at a college or even a high school. There were very few jobs, and almost none that paid enough to live on, except for the position of the professor himself. And there was usually only one professor for a discipline. And then here's, here's where the, my, the, the quote that I very much appreciated... Um, came in. He said, hence the old students saying that there were only two ways to make a university career, per anum or per vaginam, or va- uh, vaginum. Vaginam is, the old, is a proper Latin pronunciation, classical Latin, anyway. You tried to become the professor's darling, or you married his daughter. Otherwise, this limited the choice, or obviously, this limited the choice. Some professors were very nasty. Some daughters were very ugly. Girl students were altogether out of luck, but there were only a few of them. <laughs> so, wow. Um, <laughs> and as someone who is presently uh, on the academic job market for my own field, and, uh, in, in, you know, I, I could talk the rest of the podcast about this. This is absolutely the case now in particularly in the humanities in, in, in the in U.S. education, where there are there are way too many there are far more phd's being produced than there are possible jobs for them to fill and so you know you get right at th- this job cycle uh, there may be another couple jobs that post at this point but the academic job cycle is such that you know it runs where jobs post in the in the in the fall usually in the early fall and then you have interviews usually around a central academic conference uh in the late fall or, uh, or winter area, you know, toward the end of the first semester of the academic year. And then you have on-campus interviews at the beginning of the next uh, semester. And then you get offers or not at the beginning or, uh, you know, sometime after that, usually say February or March uh, is when the, the cycle basically comes to, to conclusion. And then you get the division of the contingent uh, labor positions, you know, your adjuncts and so on uh, for those who didn't get anything, which is the vast majority after that. And of course, I love, you know, you get questions from extended family and all that, like, oh, or, or people, you know, you find, they find out, oh, you, you, you've just finished a PhD or something. And it's like, oh, well, you know, where, where are you hoping to get a job? Where, where do you want to live? Well, you see, that's the thing. There are seven jobs on the market to which I can, I can apply this cycle. Now, a couple more may, may add in, but, you know, that's seven and that's nationwide, and you you know there are uh, there are going to be three or four others internationally that <laughs> that I could apply for as well. So you know you don't really have much choice on where you're going to live if you're going to stay in the field. And and then you have 150 to 250 applicants for each one of those. So the odds of getting one are pretty slim. So this is 
right along the line of what he uh, what he says is how things were in pre-war Austria, and he laments that, and then says things are headed there and worse in the U.S. and it has. <laughs> yeah. A um, couple other things. Uh, he says uh, this is another piece where that I completely uh, <laughs> I loved. He says the incredible twaddle let loose by all these computerized humanists. He complains that, that, that even the people in the humanities are now uh, taking a, trying to take a scientific perspective to their disciplines because this, what he regards as, as, as a sort of pseudoscientific approach uh, that they keep, that, that the scientific approach to humanities is, is ultimately going to kill them and make them, you know, dumber. Uh, he basically says the incredible twaddle let loose by all of these computerized humanists is probably not worse than that of the scientists. But since the former have only begun to develop a coterie jargon or an animal language of their own, they are still forced to, to use more or less intelligible words, and these give them away. Well, let me tell you, since 1978, that is no longer the case. That coterie jargon and animal language has been invented and has been perfected such that we don't have to use intelligible words in humanities anymore. And the twaddle has now actually, if not at least equaled, it has exceeded. I would say it has more than more, more, more realistically exceeded that of the uh, scientists about which he is also complaining there. Some of the the amount of incredible twaddle that I come across in the fields of the humanities and social sciences is remarkable. And uh, yeah, he, he hits a home run on how he discusses that toward the end of the book. Uh, one last quote from me. I came to the conclusion that the degree of civilization of a country can be gauged from three things. How people, how the people behave toward their children, their old, and their teachers. America fails in all three respects. And the Turks, for instance, appear to represent a much higher level despite inferior plumbing and less competence in automobile repair. I can underline that one. Like that. Yeah. I love that 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 uh, that measure of the civilization of a country, though. How do people behave toward their children, their old, and their teachers? Mm-hmm. That is wow. I love that quote in terms of the how to how to gauge the degree of civilization of a country. And if that's the case, the U.S. has gotten worse since 1978. We've gotten less civilized. Civilized. Yeah. And those are actually related to children, old, and teachers. All of that has to do with, the, with not, it's not just civilization. It has to do with respect. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with, with having boundaries uh, set so that people respect one another and pay one another honor as a result of their position in society uh, as whether it be a, a child who may be taken care of in different ways or you know, preserved, uh, an old person who is also vulnerable, and teachers who have vulnerable positions, but are also paradoxically in positions of authority. And that makes that, that puts them in an, in an odd position. So I, I thought that was a brilliant uh, insight there. Mm-hmm. So let's get to your favorite words. Now, okay. uh, definitely a favorite uh, section of the podcast for me, at least. <laughs> well, the first one is a, a good old German word. Uh, Fock idiot. Did I <laughs> pronounce that idiot. correctly? <laughs> Can you do that again? Fach idiot. Okay. I mean, my, my German pronunciation isn't very good either, but it's, uh, yeah. Well, and it means professional idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that one's cla- that That's probably the book of the, uh, or the, the word of the book to Titan so far, actually. Yeah, that's like up that there. Uh, yep. n- n- it, it actually reminds me of, uh, Nassim, uh, Taleb's, uh, notion of the, uh, intellectual yet idiot. <laughs> He, he actually uses this as a, uh, he has a, um, uh, a, a, he uses this acronym all the time, the IYI, the intellectual yet idiot. And uh, he, he says there's an entire class of intellectual yet idiot people out there. And well, we uh, need to make him aware of this word because this, this rolls off the tongue <laughs> a lot better than IYI or. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to tweet. Uh, maybe we should tweet uh, Talib uh, th- this page number. Uh, so that he can take a look at it, because this was right up Taleb's um, uh, 
and actually so much of what Targoff says here is up Taleb's, uh, 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 his particular ways of thinking and, and up his alley, uh, where, you know, he, he talks about these, uh, intellectual yet idiot, uh, there's, it's actually, uh, he has a, uh, an article describing the intellectual yet idiot on medium. And, um, he says, you know, uh, there's some really good things, but he says the intellectual yet idiot pathologizes others for doing things he doesn't understand without ever realizing that it is his understanding that may be may be limited. He's, the intellectual yet idiot is a semi erudite who thinks he is an erudite. He fails to naturally detect sophistry. And specifically, he says, the intellectual yet idiot is a production of modernity, hence has been accelerating since the mid-20th century to reach its local supremum today, along with the broad category of people without skin in the game who have been invading many walks of life. Why? Simply in most countries, the government's role is between five and ten times what it was a century ago, as expressed in, G in percentage of GDP. The intellectual yet idiot seems ubiquitous in our lives, but is a but still a, a, is a small minority and is rarely seen outside specialized outlets, think tanks, the media, and universities. Most people have proper jobs, and there are not many openings for the intellectual yet idiot class. So right up there, right up there with uh, professional idiot, fach uh, idiot that that Chargoff is going towards. So yeah, that that. Taleb's stuff on this is almost a direct echo of, and I'm not sure he's read Chargoff, but uh, it's it's very much echoing the sorts of things that uh, Chargoff is anticipating years earlier. Well, it reminds me of the Feynman book where where he's talking about the the articles he couldn't he couldn't understand what the person was saying in the article because there was <laughs> yes. so much so much Jargon. superfluous language that he would he would just take one sentence at a time and, and translate it into English. Yeah, <laughs> people read. <laughs> oh, well, okay. And and actually that gets right back to what I was saying about the twaddle with the the jargon and the animal language has been invented. See, this is where uh Feynman was re was was writing a little bit later than this and and see by that point that stuff had had come to pass in the humanities and social sciences, so things had gotten even worse. Mm -hmm. Hey. You got another well, one. I got one one more word, delectation. Uh, is for, comes from a quote. I do not read for instruction, but for the delectation of the mind. And it just means abundant delight, pleasure and delight. Yeah, it's from it's the same root that we get delectable from. Yeah, delectation is where the delectable. It's the 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 receptors for the delectable. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and this book to me was was a delight to read. So I. It was uh, delectable. All right, so let's go ahead and get uh, to a little bit more detailed stuff. I mean, we, this always now this section has always started to to meld into our quotes at this point, just because we've gotten out of control with how many favorites we like from various books. But uh, definitely some other things to discuss in more um, in more detail. Specifically, again, the, the one of the primary themes of this book, if not the primary theme, is the direction of science and the way that he is decrying what he sees as the death of real science and the introduction of, uh, of uh, pr you know, preferring explanations to understanding is one, one of the things that he, he talks about. But we, we should talk a good bit about this here and uh, in, in, in what he says about science and its direction. Yeah, and I'll, I'll go ahead and start by reading what he his, I guess, idealized view of, of science from when he was when he was a kid, or not, not a kid, but when he was starting off. When I look back on my er, in on my early way in science, on the problems I studied, on the papers I published, and even more perhaps on those things that never got into print, I noticed a freedom freedom of movement, a lack of guild imposed and narrowness, whose existence in my youth, I myself, as I write this, had almost forgotten. The world of science was open before us to a degree that has become inconceivable now when pages of pages of application papers must justify the plan of investigating in depth the 35th foot of the centipede. And one is judged by a jury of one's peers who are all centipedists or molecular podiatrists. I would say that most of the great scientists of the past could not have arisen that, in fact, most sciences could not have been founded if the present utility drunk and goal-directed attitude had prevailed. 
Ja. And for for what uh, this kind of takes what he thought of it in the past and then where he saw it going. And this this is from page 104 of the uh, the hardback version. Science shook the shakeable and confirmed the firm. Its use as an ideological weapon came later. Yeah. From there, he starts talking about science becoming a religion. And I thought that was very insightful, especially, uh, you know, one of the, the, the most discussed topics of, of today with science is, is climate change. And if you look, if you just, if you take a step back and, and look at how people are, are actually discussing it, it's in terms of belief, which, which is very striking and very odd, uh, for, for a system that's looking to create a hypothesis, test that, and then get rid of it. If it, if, uh, if it's, if it's not valid to, to all of a sudden now we're talking, you, you are, if you don't believe in it, you're a denier. Uh, so he, he talks a lot about this becoming a religion. And, and one of the quotes, considering the role of science in our time generally agreed to be a flourishing as never before. I've not been able to decide whether it's enormous ascendancy was the cause of, or was caused by the disappearance of the religious sentiment. Yeah, and he continues, there can, however, be little doubt that the whole complex of the natural sciences has become a substitute religion, fulfilling the double roles of mysterious incomprehensibility to the lay public and a means of livelihood for its practitioners. And I thought that was really profound, Mm. that the mysterious incomprehensibility to the lay public allows the practitioners of science, allows scientists to have the kind of authority that priests in prior eras might have had, uh, you know, as those who come into contact with the mysterious and uh, give, so it gives them that kind of authority and also provides a nice means of livelihood for those who may, who may uh, deal with it. So, and, and, and what he really is getting at, he's not critiquing, science itself what he's critiquing is scientism uh which you know that that distinction is that that terminology isn't isn't around in his day but this idea that that uh that first of all science can provide all the answers that we really need in life and he very clearly explains that that just isn't the case that there are limits to what science can actually investigate and secondly uh that uh, it, it has to do with science itself or certain, uh, certain basically, again, getting to this idea of, of someone who, because they're a scientist, has authority in ver- by virtue of being a scientist, and therefore they should be listened to about all sorts of other things. And so, you know, scientific theories and hypotheses get uh, elevated to the level of myths that govern society, and that that he thinks is, is, is a negative. Yep. And then, uh, and one more on science as a religion, the dogma of the, of the infallibility of science has become so strong and generally accepted that measure measures of excommunication customary in weaker churches do not even have to be contemplated. It is presumably for this reason that I've been spared the fate of earlier heretics. The refusal of research grants is, in any event, a more effective form of interdict, a retribution from which, in the last few years, I've been far from being exempt. Brutal. So in- interesting points there of just the not even uh, formally kick- kicked out in, in terms of uh, uh, excommunication, but just not not getting funding and and I, I know you've seen a lot of that in uh, in in the university system of of what gets funded gets gets promoted and he, well yeah he, uh, there's there's all sorts that. of there's all sorts of complicated uh, incentives in place throughout the, the the research apparatus of various institutions and because and and ultimately those incentives govern everything so you know incentives matter and. When incentives are, are out of whack, the things that, that are incented 
those are the things that ultimately get pushed and get studied and, you know, get additional hires and, and all these other things. So, yeah, he, he, he's on the cutting edge of complaining about a lot of that. And mm-hmm. he says, you know, if you want to do if you want to do science in a more pure fashion, which he also questions, you know, how pure anything can really be. I mean, he, he's he's a skeptic about that to begin with. But, you know, he, he basically is complaining that a more pure uh, type of 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 science is unattached from uh and and is more amateur uh but it's more difficult to do in today's world where it requires a good amount of money to have the necessary equipment to be able to 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 do the kinds of study that you need to do to to make breakthroughs and to to understand how things work and and all of that so you know he 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 is very conscious of the polluting effect that money and various incentives that come along with that bring to science. But he also acknowledges that there's issues in terms of, uh, you know, you, you can't really do without it either. So, uh, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you had a lot, uh, a lot of different things that something else that, that stuck out to you big about the, from the book. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's there are all sorts of different quotes and things that get to some of the things that he talks about here. I mean, I think one other thing that that is really big on uh, in in terms of how he discusses science and where it's going and some of the things that he really disagrees with is uh, he he tries to draw a pretty significant parallel or, or a distinction between understanding something understanding what's actually happening and having explanations for things. And he says, in general, it is hoped that our road, that is the road of science, will lead to understanding. Mostly, it leads only to explanations. And that that that, that distinction is one that I haven't really seen a whole lot, but I thought it was a really, um, uh, a really important uh, distinction. That that really understanding something means you get and, and you 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 grasp the underlying principles and concepts and all of that behind it, which is beyond just having an explanation for it where you can explain it, but you may not actually have the full grasp of it. And and he wants to really distinguish between those, you know, he, he, he talks about, uh, uh, our understanding of the world is built up of innumerable layers and each layer is worth exploring as long as we do not forget that it is one of many. So you can explain lots of things on one layer, but then as soon as you go down one layer, that explanation doesn't really cut it. And he wants to, he wants to, to draw that distinction where, where science, he says, listen, what we can do. And even once we get explanations that work, that doesn't really mean we understand the thing that we're studying. We just can explain how certain things happen. And again, that, that's a distinction he makes in, uh, when he talks about studying life and really understanding life. Well, you can explain how certain things happen genetically, but you can't, you can't, we, we still don't understand life at, the, at like the deep level. And, and he really likes to, 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 to highlight that point. And again, I think it's an important one because it does bring out that mystery that we need to, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we, we have to understand that we don't understand that. And we don't have the, the tools developed at this point to be able to understand it. So, so yeah, he, he, he keeps getting into that, uh, in his anal- evaluation of where science is going to. Uh, and, and, and he, you know, further goes on and says, you know, the availability of a large number of established methods serves, in fact, in modern science, often as a surrogate of thought. So instead of really thinking about something, you just, he says, many researchers now apply methods whose rationale they don't really understand. Well, I'm going to apply this method to it. Well, why? Well, I mean, it's one option. Somebody else put this method together years ago. And if I apply it, I might get results. Well, that doesn't mean you actually understand the mechanisms at all. So, so you, you as a professor, how, how do you test your students with that distinction? That's of, a really hard thing. Yeah. 
that kind of assessment is hard. And part of it is, is that when you're assessing it, when you're grading it, you actually have to have someone who does understand or understands the limits of understanding to be able to detect, to sniff out whether someone else has, has gotten there. And there is a sort of art to it. And yeah. that is something that we're not comfortable with in a, in a society that values empiricism so much because you can't always empirically get to it. You, you, you have to be able to, uh, there, there, there is a, uh, it's sort of like the pornography explanation. You know, I know it when I see it, mm -hmm. right. That is sort of where, where, where it ends up with in, in some cases. So, uh, the other thing that, that I thought, uh, and I want to hear your, your take on some here too, is he really also goes after the, uh, this, uh, what he refers to as the thoughtless, almost automatic use of science as the seed of technology. And that basically science has gone from investigating the mysteries of the world to trying to find explanations for how things work so that we can technologically improve upon them. And it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of an intermediate step toward engineering and he sees the direction that some of these engineering solutions go as frightful and uh, and horrifying. You know, most notably the atom bomb, where he's like, "Yeah, when, whenever we engineer this stuff, when we improve upon it, we always find ways to to destroy things with it. We don't improve things; we just find more ways to take our worst natures and and embody those." Yeah, and and, and that was a, a big turning point in his life. I he he says that 1945 was the year that changed his entire attitude about science. And it was, it was because of the, um, of the atom bomb. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Between that, the Holocaust and the atom bomb, he recognized pretty quickly that there were some, uh, some factors at work here in terms that, that, that science couldn't provide a solution to. And in fact, could only contribute to the exacerbation of those forces that, Solutions couldn't be found in science because humanity has deeper problems that go beyond the empirical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, with, with that, I, I, I don't know. I, I, the one, the one thing that is interesting is, to me though, is, uh, is what we were talking about earlier where, uh, kind of this idea of science becoming a, a religion, um, and, and you, you losing that, that talk of, of continual testing and, um, and, it, and it turning more into a belief system. And then even what we were getting into last week where uh, the, the tweet that you had about worldviews and, and how if, if, uh, if certain theories on science are becoming a, a worldview for people, uh, they may not, someone with a differing worldview is not going to take on to that, that theory of, of, in this case, it, it was, uh, climate change. Um, so, so that, that changing of language into uh, more of a belief system and, in 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 a religion, I, I think is, is one of the, the real interesting things about the direction of science. And, and I'm sure that's been going on for a while, but he, he really talks about it a lot in this book and, and, and sees it happening kind of before him. And then, and then, uh, obviously the, um, the experiences of it, of his life led to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, I mean, I, I think we go much further there. We're going to start beating the dead horse. And that was one, one of my complaints, actually. I enjoyed a lot of what he had to say here, but I did think that there were, that there were a number of repetitions and, mm -hmm. and, and he kind of went in circles in a few cases where, uh, again, the book was a little bit, uh, overly, um, repetitive in certain, in certain places. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but sometimes when he did come back to something, return to it, he had some additional layers to what he had to say that actually made me appreciate the repetition. So it's a little bit of a, a give and take there. Um, but yeah, he, he, uh, <laughs> there's, there, there was a lot in here. Anybody who is a part of the, uh, the realm of higher ed in particular, will find some things in this book that they'll go, yeah, well, that's kind of true, such as his description. The production of academically trained people continued, this is in Austria, uh, at a high rate, but there was no place for them to go. They had to be exported. Yeah, welcome to <laughs> 21st century American universities. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I also, uh, I also kind of liked his pessimistic view of indolence as the only response to an absurd universe, given what he had seen in the 20th century, uh, you know, basically being indolent instead of trying to find solutions to things, just, you know, being, being willing to just sit back and, and do nothing is actually better because he says, you know, indolence is a virtue. If it prevents you from stirring the pot, just for the sake of stirring the do-gooders have done so much evil that not to do this kind of good has become a virtue. (laughs) And again, that's kind of, that's, that's referring to things like, the, the, the atom bomb and the Vietnam War and so on, these things that are spurred by the desire to, to you know, rescue the, th- the, the good side. And he's going, yeah, but like, what are you giving up to get there? Like, mm-hmm. if that's what it means to do good, then do nothing. My God. When it so, kind of, he, he, it's, it's his philosophy on life for himself as well. He, he talks about it over and over of, well, this just, this kind of just happened to me. And, and then I, I didn't really decide on this, but it, it just, I, I kind of fell into this and it, it, he, he keeps going, he keeps talking about that over and over. I thought it was interesting that, that that's his, his view on life. And so it, it, he didn't really seem like that strong, strong type of personality either. That was, oh, I'm going to go out and do this, or I'm going to be a do-gooder, but just kind of let things happen. And then it seems like that's his, uh, what he thinks might might be a good idea on a on a grander scale as well. Yeah, I think we can basically uh, start wrapping it from there because I mean I think we've we've hit the 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 detailed points that are worth uh, worth discussing, uh, and we can go ahead and start to uh, to move on. So uh, big picture stuff. Returning back to uh, your reflections on the book from a larger larger end. Yeah, I love this book. This was one of my uh, one of my favorites so far of the the books that we've read. And even even past that, on, on the other books of Titan stuff that I've read, this is, this still is up there as one of my favorites. He's he's incredibly funny, uh, very insightful, and it was just one of those books. It was a delight to read. I didn't want to put it down. Uh, the the discussions on the direction of science were were interesting, especially coming in 1978, and just overall, I I, I loved. I loved reading about his early life in Austria and, and the things that attracted him to Aust- Austria. Uh, the music, the j- just the, the the things he experienced, the the discussions. It just it sounded awesome, and so I, I loved reading about that. And then he just had an interesting life going through all these huge events, and and being on the front lines of a lot of them. It, to get his perspective was was really nice. Uh, I, I do want to comment as well. If, if you are interested in reading this book, if you go to Amazon, it's like 70 bucks, but if you go to, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, but it, it's, um, it's a university site and they have, uh, they have the book for 30 or 40 bucks. And then they also have a, a EPUB version for free. So if, if you want to read it on in iBooks or, or, uh, or your, the, whatever you use to, to read digital books, you can get that there for free as well. So don't don't spend the seventy bucks. Um, but if you do want the hardcover, it, it's uh, it's thirty or forty bucks, which is a little pricey for compared to the other books we've been reading. But um, just a little. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed. What, this you book? I enjoyed this book too. Um, I, I I don't think I enjoyed it quite as much as you did. Um, but mm-hmm. there were a lot of similarities, a lot of things that, that paralleled, you know, other authors that I've really appreciated in the past, uh, like again, Solzhenitsyn and, and, uh, certain places and C.S. Lewis and some other places and, uh, 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 Feynman in some places. I mean, he, he's, he's a lucid thinker, uh, and someone who brings a, a, enough of a pessimistic kind of contrarian view that I think is worth, uh, worth reading. It's one that I, I definitely w- uh, would recommend, it's not one that I found quite as delightful to read as, as perhaps you did. Um, there were, uh, I, I enjoyed his use of, uh, and facility with language w- without question. Um, mm-hmm. and as someone who has, uh, studied all sorts of different languages, uh, as well, he, um, uh, uh, I, I really appreciated and enjoy and enjoyed his, uh, references to different aspects of language and how language works and, 
you know, differences with this language and that language and how there's a better word here than there, et cetera. A lot of that stuff I could totally relate to and liked, although he, I think he was, he had more facility with more modern languages than certainly than I do. Um, but, uh, yeah, he had 15 languages that he, uh, that, yeah, that he had at least dabbled with at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, the advantage of being raised in the old gymnasium education back in, uh, in Austria is, is helpful there because he was probably, you know, at least four or five of those by the time he was, he probably had at least four or five of those by the time he was uh, a teenager. So, uh, you know, that's pretty, pretty standard in those old, uh, older, uh, educational systems. So, but, uh, but yeah, I appreciated a lot of that. Um, it, again, I think, it, I think it's a, a valuable book. It's one of those that, uh, again, I would recommend particularly given it's, uh, the way that it, 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 it has it has a very different message from so many of the kind of triumphalist types of read of of uh, of uh, perspectives that you'll see in say twenty first century books. This is a, a nice reminder that not everything is as rosy as it seems, and it's a nice reminder that we may think that we're more more uh, more civilized than you know past ages that were you know far worse than us, but in fact, have we just found ways to uh, you know to uh, sanitize our incivility and actually make it worse while hiding it from ourselves and these sorts of things. Uh, these sorts of critiques are, 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 I think, worth reading for anybody. And, uh, and again, I, I think it, it's, a, it's one of the better books that we've read so far. So uh, I'll definitely agree with that. Although, again, I didn't perhaps enjoy it as much as some of the others. Uh, but yeah. I, I think it's definitely one of the better books so far. Well, one thing before we, we close out here, the title... Huh. What does yes. it mean? So uh, Heraclitus, or uh, Heraclitos, uh, the uh, Greek philosopher, he's a pre-Socratic Greek, Greek philosopher, believed that uh, everything in the world ultimately was com comprised of or made of the primordial element of fire. And so what he's getting at is he's getting at this primordial mysterious, the, the thing, you know, he's, he's alluding to the idea of, of beginnings beyond what we can study in science today. I think that's, that's more, more or less the type of illusion that he's making in the title. Okay. Cause, uh, Heraclitus was also the guy who said no man ever steps in the same river twice. And then the way up and the way down is one and the same. And Chargoff actually disagrees with him on that, on that second quote. In, in on page one one ninety nine of the book, um, and and then there's there was one uh, so in, I did like a search just for for Heracletian fire. <laughs> is that how I, is that how you say? Because I, so, I keep I I've been in my head I've been saying saying yeah I've been saying Heracletian fire the for the last six months in my head and I just when you when you said it uh, recently of how it's actually supposed to be pronounced. So I'm having trouble like remembering. Right. Well, the either. problem is that, that in Greek it's Heraklitos, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or, uh, and, and so, but that, that's, that's one thing because the I sound in Greek is an E, uh, just okay. like it used to be in English. But in English, when it's usually pronounced, you, people say Heraclitus. And then when they use it as an adjective, it's usually Heraclitian. Okay. Uh, so there's a there's a poem by Ger Gerard Manley Hopkins, and the name of the poem is that nature is a Heracl Heraclitian fire, <laughs> Heraclitian fire, and of the comfort of the resurrection. Uh, and I link to that. I can link to that poem from the uh, in our in our show notes as well. Um, but yeah, that was so, the only other reference I could find. Yeah, could but, find but again, for Heraclitus, the idea is, again, the whole cosmos is comprised of fire. Fire is the per first principle. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a kind of atomism or early concept of atomism that everything is made of fire in some way. And fire changes into other elements. You have this cosmic cycle that, you know, how that works. He, it, it, we, we don't have enough of Heraclitus to really understand, but... Um, but basically, he understands fire as that as that first principle, 
that again, one of the things it, when he talks about when you put your foot into a river, you never step into the same river twice because the water flows, right? And that's one of the uh, one of the uh, ideas that he has is that everything flows. Well, everything changes. Everything is always changing. Uh, that there is nothing in the material world that is permanent. And of course, fire is a great example of that, right? Fire is always moving. It's all, it's unpredictable in that sense. It's always constant, but it's always changing. And so fire works as a, as the, uh, uh, as the, uh, metaphorical, I think really is the way to think about it, but is the, this metaphorical, uh, conception of, of first, of first things and how the world actually works and what it, what it's made of and all of that. Uh, so, I think that's where again Chargoff uh, Chargoff is uh, is is alluding to that that kind of concept that and and to the uh, the mystery of that sort of nature uh, and again he he uh, for Heraclitus he's trying to uh, he he argues that everything is is based upon a logos that is above uh, this logos is this. Uh, uh, conception of divine is the wrong word, but, uh, of ideal or eternal, this, it's an eternal principle, what we might call the law of nature or laws of nature. Uh, everything works according to this, this principle, everything came into being in accordance with principle, with that principle. But, uh, everything that is actually matter and material is always, is all is always changing and is always uh uh it's constant but always changing unlike logos which is fixed and so in this sense he, he uh pre uh pre uh he anticipates a little bit of where where plato goes with that uh so anyway there's a, there's a lot of background here and it, it it makes sense on why he would he would choose this particularly again getting getting back to the mystery that goes that that goes beyond what we can actually uh assess in our modern scientific uh ways of ways of thinking it's a metaphysical mm -hmm. concept all right well that will do it for us today before we get out of here a reminder you can follow us at booksoftitans.com we're on instagram and twitter at books of titans and please subscribe to this podcast we're in iTunes. You can you can get access to all of our previous episodes. This is episode number twenty, so we actually have twenty past episodes uh, because we we threw in a special episode in there. So this is our twenty first episode, but uh, the twentieth book that we that we discuss. We are in the Android marketplace. Uh, any podcast manager of your your choice, share it, rate us, rate it. Uh, let us know how we're doing. We'd we'd love to hear from you. Next week, we are discussing Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. It's a novel about... Uh, it's really three novels. <laughs> yeah. In one. Yeah. Uh, it, but it's required reading at um, at West Point for West Point cadets. So War college, yeah. Very, very... Uh, that'll be a good discussion. So uh, join us again next week for that. On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rostad, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. Don't be a fuck idiot. I made this.